All right, everybody, good morning. How are we doing? Fantastic, fantastic. My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors. If you're new to Remnant, welcome. Uh, we love new faces and new folks because, um, honestly, you usually raise the level of the rest of us, and that's just wonderful how that works. No, seriously. We, we come here every week because we've encountered this relationship with Jesus, and we're trying to figure out how that actually works and what we're to do and the more we learn, the more we surrender, the more we get changed, and the more our lives are transformed, and we come here to celebrate that, and we don't know what's happening to us, but we know God's doing it, and so uh, if you're here, welcome. I'm just glad you're here. We're in the middle of a Christmas series, as you might suspect, and um, I thought it would be good. I like to just sort of read the story of Christmas straight from the Bible, and so I thought we'd start out today kind of doing that. So let me, uh, let me just start out, and uh, we'll see where it takes us. Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram, the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab, the father of Nishan. Nishan, the father of Salmon, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shelatiel, and Shelatiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Elakim, and Elakim the father of Azor. And Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliad, and Iliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called the Christ. Wow. Why did Matthew decide to start the introduction of the Messiah with a long and diverse genealogy? It makes no sense. Why, why would you do that? The greatest message in the world is here, and he starts his story with the genealogy of this person he calls the Christ. Why did Jewish people even care about such things? Why should we care about that particular passage in Scripture? Why should we start the Christmas series, the Christmas story, with those words? Well, it turns out that on the first Christmas night, many who studied the scriptures were actually expecting the Messiah to come soon. To a descendant of David in Bethlehem. If not within a few years, tonight. They didn't know which night, but they could tell it was coming. It had to because the prophecies, the scriptures had all said that it would. How did they know the Messiah was coming? How could they be so sure? We'll learn that wise men from Babylon, non-Jewish men, 
who knew the scriptures were expecting his arrival. We'll learn of a man named Simeon who knew he would come and was waiting for him in the temple. It turns out that not everyone was surprised when Jesus was born. The scriptures had been revealing clues about his arrival for over 2,000 years, starting in Genesis. Those who knew the scriptures were not surprised at his first coming, just like those of us who know the scriptures today will not be surprised at his second coming. In fact, Jesus himself tells us that all the predictions in the Bible about him have to be absolutely fulfilled in him. Even if one is not, God is a liar and Jesus can't be the Messiah. Jesus himself told the two men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection, he said, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Jesus describes the three major sections of the Old Testament. The Jews call it the Tanakh. Your Hebrew Bible is what we call the Old Testament. Jesus says, everything in those scriptures point to me, and I have to fulfill every single thing said about me. In other words, if you're reading the Old Testament and you're not seeing me, you're misreading the Old Testament. We're going to look at the Holy Scriptures and trace the lineage of Jesus as foretold in the Old Testament. This Christmas, I'm just going to go over 15 prophecies, just 15, 15 clues, if you will, that answer the question, how would the Israelites recognize the Messiah when he came? What were his credentials? Who would his son be? Where would he be born? How would he die? When would he come? All the answers to those questions are laid out like a script in the Old Testament. They were written hundreds, if not thousands of years before they ever happened. And the Bible is the only holy book and the only holy book that does that. Predicting things before they happen with 100% accuracy. Never wrong. This Christmas, rather than looking back to the Christmas story, I want us to get our mindset of those who lived in the Old Testament and looked forward to the Messiah to come. Looking back to that Christmas, we're going to put on glasses of those that were in that day, and we're going to study the same scriptures they studied. God made the arrival of the Messiah crystal clear in his word, and we're going to see that it was so clear that Jewish women actually prayed that their son would be the promised one. In fact, they expected the Messiah to come during that generation because he had to. And we're going to understand why that was occurring. The Jewish people, if they knew anything, they knew the Jewish scriptures. And there could be no doubt that the Messiah had to arrive very soon, for sure within the next 30 years. The Jewish people knew the Messiah was coming because God always kept his promises and he foretold of him each scripture being a clue, each clue narrowing down the possibilities, each clue increasing our expectation, each clue clarifying our perspective, and each clue increasing our anticipation. Those who studied God's word learned of a promised one to come, a promised one, only one. God wanted to make sure that those who were serious about looking for him would recognize him when he showed up. 
And as their understanding matured, their anticipation builds. And as we head towards Christmas, we too need to anticipate and look forward to the scriptures. During his lifetime, Jesus fulfilled over 315 specific prophecies. 315 clues, if you will, that revealed who this man would be, what he would do, and who should follow him. No other religion in the world writes the autobiography of their leader thousands of years before he's born. Thousands of years before he's born with 100% accuracy. When I began studying prophecy, I began to understand that this book could only have been written by God. It's impossible that any human could have written this, that no other religion can make that claim. And my only response to the truth in this book is to surrender to the God who wrote it and accept Jesus as my Messiah, my Savior. We're not gonna look at all 315 prophecies. I've chosen just 15, 15. 15 prophecies that give us a new perspective that this was not so silent of a night after all. What God promised happened and the world was never again the same. Christmas is a story of God keeping his promise. You see, for unto us a Savior is born. God wanted to reveal his plan. He wanted those who truly desired to know, those who were willing to study the scriptures, those who were willing to search with, his, with their heart, that they would know his plan and they'd recognize it when it unfolds. But those who weren't willing to search, those who didn't believe God's promises, those who didn't search with their heart because they thought they knew everything, those who had their own agendas, their own expectations, would miss it. You see, discovery comes from a desire to pursue. My hope is that this Christmas, if you've never studied the scriptures, that you with an open mind would pursue what God reveals in his word. Our Christmas gift to you this season is to help you see God's plan and to be used by God to point you to the promised one. So you can decide for yourself whether to accept him or reject what God has done and the one he promised. You see, God didn't leave us clueless. Have you ever played that game, 20 Questions? where you always come down to one thing after only 20 questions. It's a game based on deductive reasoning that dates back to the 1800s. The series is sort of like that. No one else could have been the Messiah. Many people claim to be the Messiah, just like today. God wanted us to know there was only one Messiah and only one person ever born in all of human history who could be the Messiah. If I wanted to identify one person in the world and make sure you knew who it was, I would give you clues. I'd give you some identifiers. I'd say things like, well, he's in the Western Hemisphere. I'll tell you what country, United States, the state, the zip code, the city, the street, the name, the address, the name, junior, senior. I would give you all the clues to walk you down to that one single person at that one place. The scriptures do that. These 15 prophecies start off broadly and generically, but by number 15, the scriptures are pointing only to one man ever born then or now in all of human history. So let's start the journey towards Christmas and look at the first clue. The first thing we need to know is that the scriptures are very clear that the promised one would be a man. 
not an angel, not a spirit, not some kind of divine being that looks like an angel or a force or a spiritual force, not a woman, it would be a man. You see, the serpent Satan had deceived Adam and Eve, not a made-up story, a moment in history. Sin entered the world, the creations rejected its creator, everyone's doomed to death, and as God is declaring his punishment for Satan, he makes sure that he gives us hope. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, which means hostility, hatred, ill will, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, you will strike his heel. This is the first formal presentation of the gospel in the Bible. Yes, there's sin. Yes, there's death. But I'm sending one who's going to crush you, Satan. God gave a prediction concerning the fate of the serpent. One of these days, Mr. Serpent, there's going to be one who will be a descendant of a woman, human. One of her descendants will come forward. Serpent, I want you to know that you'll be able to bruise his heel. You're going to hurt him. You'll be able to cause some damage. But Mr. Serpent, Satan, this promised one comes from her offspring. He's going to crush your head. Yes. Write that down while you still can. You will hurt him, but he will destroy you. It's part of my sovereign plan. You see, you, Satan, can only do what I, God, allow. He will be the one that battles with you. In Genesis 3, God loves us so much that even though he must issue his punishment for Satan and man, he promises one to come. And he promises victory. So even though Adam and Eve's sin has separated us from God, God promises one who will defeat Satan has done and will restore his relationship, the relationship we lost in the garden. There's someone coming, born of a woman, who's going to crush Satan's head. God essentially said, you've lost the battle, but I'm going to win the war. There's so much to unpack in this one passage, but we're going to save that for a later time. For our purposes today, this passage tells us that the promised one will be a man. He, a man, will crush your head. Satan, so Messiah will be a male. That narrows it down by at least half. Maybe not today. But, we need more clues. There's a lot of men going to be born. So we get to the second clue in Scripture. The promised one will be Semitic. You see, we use the term Semitic today to mean someone who's Jewish. But the meaning really is anybody of Abraham's descent, including Jews and Arabs. Genesis 9, let me set the context. There was a great flood. Not some story, a moment in history. We know the ark, we learned that eight people survived the flood and they would populate the world. We know from 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 2.5, who are the eight? Well, you have Mr. and Mrs. Noah. Their three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and their wives. And the entire world has populated from that group of people. Everybody if it was possible, could trace their lineage to one of those eight people. 
And so could the promised one. The question, though, is through which line would the Messiah come? Ham, Shem, or Japheth? Well, Genesis 9.26. He said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. The blessed lineage would be through Shem. Shem is the blessed line. The Messiah must come from Shem's line. It's from Shem that we get the word Semitic. Who are the Semitic people of the earth? All those who descended from Shem. Jews, Arabs, Syrians, Assyrians, and Persians. The Messiah would not come from Ham's line. We could have expected that since Ham was cursed because he looked on Noah's nakedness, if you remember the story. Who are Ham's descendants? Well, they're the people that are always fighting God. It's a cursed line. The Cushites, the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, the Libyans, the Palestinians, and the dreaded Canaanites. Essentially all from the Middle East except the Arabs. He's not coming from Japheth's line. Most people in Europe and North America come from that line. So the promised one will be a man. He'll be Semitic. But there's lots of Jews and Arabs and Persians. So which Semitic nation will he come from? Well, God doesn't leave us wondering. Turns out the promised one must come from Abraham's descendants. In Genesis 11, there's a, a long genealogy. It starts with Shem and it goes all the way down to Terah, Abraham's father. And then we study Abram, who would be Abraham. And God begins to deal with Abraham in a special way. And he makes promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Note that God is going to bless those, plural. But the curse is singular, Satan. God did not curse mankind, he cursed Satan. Despite all that, the blessing of God, the promised one to come, is promised through Abram to the families of the earth. That same promise is repeated in Genesis 22. I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall be all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. The blessing is going through Abraham. The blessing that starts in Genesis 3 tracks through Shem's line. Now we learn it's through Abraham's family that the blessing flows. The promised one will come through Abraham. So the promised one is a man, he'll be Semitic, and he's going to be able to track himself through Abraham's family. But we have a problem. Abraham had more than one son. Hmm. Remember that he had Ishmael and Isaac? So which one is the blessing through? Both are Semitic. One group produces Arabs, one group produces Jews. Where does the blessing flow? This is what's called turmoil in the Middle East since the beginning. Our entire world hinges on the answer to this question. This is the core issue between the Jews and the Arabs. Who was the promised one? Where did he come from? 
Did he come from Ishmael's line and it's Muhammad? Or did he come from Isaac's line and it's Jesus? Well, the scriptures tell us the promised one must come through Isaac's line. Abraham knew his offspring would be blessed, right? He knew. God told him, I'm going to bless your offspring. They all knew what that meant. The promised one was going to come through his offspring. And Abraham said, behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. So Abraham says, look, I know you promised the line through me, but I'm an old man. My wife is old. This isn't going to happen. If I die, then it goes to some house servant. God says, oh, no, 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 no. I got it covered. You're going to have a child. Abraham realizes he has no heir. But God tells him, the promise will come through you, your actual child. The problem is that Abraham got tired of waiting on God. He thought he'd help God out. Every time we try to help God out, we create more problems than answers. He says, I think my wife is too old to bear a son, so I'll do what's customary. Sarah and Abraham decided to allow him to impregnate Hagar. Hagar was an Egyptian servant. Egyptian? Curse line, right? Back to Ham. Just remember that. And from the union came forth Ishmael. Hagar came from Egypt. She was of the line of Ham. Genealogies tracked through the male, however. Look how proud Abraham is in Genesis 17. And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Look what I've done. God, I've solved your problem. Look at what I've done for you. Look how much I helped you, God. You see, you really need my help. I took care of this for us. And this is God's response. No. No. In the language today, that means no. Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you'll call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. It could be no clearer. No, God says. He's not impressed. This blessing, this lineage of the promised one is mine to carry out, not yours. It started in Genesis, and it's going to be channeled through the lineage of Isaac, not Ishmael. God reminding Abraham and us, I'm working out my plan. My plan that existed long before you were ever born. I don't need your help. This blessing will unfold exactly as it unfolds. Sarah will become pregnant in her old age and give birth to Isaac, just as God determined and predicted in advance. So now we have a problem. Isaac had more than one son. Two are prominent in scriptures, Esau and Jacob. So which one would be the lineage of the promised one? Well, it turns out the promised one will come through Jacob's line, the scriptures say. We turn to Numbers 23 and 24. These are called Balaam's oracles. The nation of Israel has been in bondage to Egypt for 400 years. In the Exodus, they go to Mount Sinai. They receive the Mosaic law. They get to the edge of the promised land. God tells them to scout out Jericho. Some of them go look at Jericho, they see giants there, they freak out and they run back to the desert. 
The same generation that saw God deliver them from Egypt, saw God deliver them through miraculous plagues, protected them as he passed over, let them cross the Red Sea, gave them the commandments. They trusted God to do all that, but they couldn't trust him to drive out the giants in the promised land. Sounds like us, doesn't it? I mean, God gets us through one crisis, but we doubt he'll get us through the next one. We lapse into unbelief. That's what happened to the first generation of the Jewish nation. And God said, because of your unbelief, you're going to wander out in the desert and die here. You're not worthy to enter the promised land because you lack faith. Foreshadowing those of us in end times who lack the faith to enter the promised land. Only two who didn't doubt me will enter the promised land, Joshua and Caleb. They end up camping just across the Jordan from Jericho in the land of Moab. And that's where Numbers 23 and 24 comes in. One of the enemies of Israel is a man named Balak, the king of Moab. He hired Balaam, a Jewish prophet, to curse Israel. This Jewish prophet was up for sale. He'd say whatever they paid him to say. So the Moabite, which, oh, by the way, is one of the curse lines of Ham, hired a Jewish prophet to speak falsehood and paid him to do it. But every time the prophet tried to speak against Israel, the words that came out of his mouth were praising God and praising Israel. Every time he tried to curse Israel, it would backfire. There are seven of these Balaam's oracles, and each of these seven said, Balaam took up his discourse and said, and we're going to look at number four. Here's what he says. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. It will crush the forehead of Moab. Curse line of Satan, crushed forehead. We've seen that before. And break down all the sons of Sheth. So we have a star. We have a scepter. A scepter was a staff of royal power. What this scripture is saying is there's going to be a king. And he's going to come out of Jacob, the line of Jacob. Now, the descendants of Jacob are 12 tribes, 12 different descendants of Jacob, remember? The Messiah will be Jewish. That means you're a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God has eliminated all other Gentile nations. He's eliminated everybody. This Messiah, this promised one, is going to come from Abraham, then to Isaac, and through Jacob. He eliminated all of the Arabic nations. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, a scepter or king will come out of Israel. The phrase crush the head is a link to Genesis 3. He will crush the head of the enemies of Israel including the Moabites and the Canaanites and the descendants of Ham. Our Christmas cards show a star. We learn of wise men who were looking for a star, the star that would rise out of Jacob, representing a king that would rise out of Israel. Have you ever wondered why, why there's a star? What caused them to associate the coming of the Messiah with a star? These wise men came from the east. They weren't Jewish. How did these non-Jewish people from far off in Babylon know to look for a star in the sky? How did they know? 
How did they know to anticipate the Jewish Messiah when those in Jerusalem who were Jewish missed it? Why did they travel so far to see this new king who really wasn't even theirs? We picture three of them because they throw up about three gifts. I'm going to blow that up for you a little bit. It was more likely there were almost a hundred of them. Their arrival stirred up all Jerusalem. When they came to Jerusalem, the entire town is stirred up. They tended to travel in large numbers because it wasn't safe to do it any other way, particularly if you're carrying gold. Traveling by camel across the desert, what did they see in the sky that told them this was a special event? What did they see that was so amazing that they left everything to travel to Jerusalem to find him? It's like a three-year journey. We believe today that they were from Mesopotamia, the Babylonian area, today's Iraq. These wise men were members of a learned class that emerged from ancient Persia. They were advisors to the king. They were trained in agriculture and mathematics and history and astronomy. And it turns out they were trained in Jewish scriptures. <coughs> Eastern Magi were known to have a thirst for knowledge that was insatiable. They have an interest in Jewish scriptures. To understand that, you have to go back 600 years before Jesus' birth. God made a covenant with the Jewish people at Mount Sinai, and he warned them that if they didn't follow his commands, they'd be scattered throughout the world. Deuteronomy 28, 64, and the Lord will scatter you among the peoples and from one end of the earth to the other, and there you shall serve other gods and wood and stone, and neither you nor your fathers have known. After a lengthy history of disobedience, God finally allowed Jerusalem to fall in 586 B.C. We've talked about this before. The temples destroyed King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, brings all the exiles into Babylon. One of those young exiles was a man named Daniel that we've read about. Daniel's story involves refusing to bow down to the king surviving a lion's den and eventually finding favor from the king, and he ends up with a very interesting job. King Nebuchadnezzar has a concerning dream that no one can interpret. Daniel tells him that God will allow him to interpret the dream, and he accurately tells the king what the dream means, and look at what happens next. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel. And commanded that an offering and an incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of God and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. Daniel has now been moved into a place overseeing the wise men in Babylon. He's the leader, God's sovereign plan, working out details 600 years before the Messiah, puts Daniel in a place of influence. Think about that. He became leader of the wise men of a foreign nation and even got King Nebuchadnezzar to recognize Daniel's God. What do you think Daniel taught these wise men? He went to the lion's den because he wouldn't compromise God's truth. What do you think he taught them? He clearly taught them the Jewish scriptures. He taught them about the prophecies. He taught them about the star, the scepter that rises out of Israel, the blessing that comes through the line of Judah. 
He taught them even the prophecies about themselves. Did you know that the wise men coming was a fulfillment of prophecy? Isaiah 60, verse 3. The nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar. A multitude of camels will cover you. The young camels of Midian and Epheth. All those from Sheba shall come. And they will bring, what? Gold and frankincense and good news and the praises of the Lord. Isaiah 60. 800 years before it's ever written, ever happened. Nations will come to your light. Kings will come to the brightness of your rising, your appearance, your showing up. They come from the east. They're going to bear gold and frankincense. Makes sense to me. Frankincense. All right. <laughs> Bringing good news and praises the Lord. Not only were they given specific details, but it appears they were also taught when the star would show up. Daniel was given a prophecy by God regarding the timing of these events. It reveals Daniel 9 and the prophecy of 70 weeks. We're going to cover those next week. But this prophecy tells us that there'll be 69 weeks. And in Scripture, weeks is a, a, a euphemism for seven years. There'll be 69 periods of seven years each. Between when the decree goes out to rebuild the first temple and when the Messiah will present himself to that temple and be cut off. Now think about what that says. That says if you know the date when the first temple is to be rebuilt, you can start counting. And you'll get to a point where you know the Messiah has to show up at that temple. The decree to rebuild the first temple. He's likely referring to Nehemiah 1, 444 B.C. Scriptures say, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. Okay? The month of Nisan, the 20th year of King Artaxerxes. This is when uh, uh, Nehemiah asked him to go rebuild the temple. 444 B.C. That's when that happened, 20 years, okay? So from 444 B.C., they started counting. And based on that prophecy, they believed, the Jewish nation believed that the Messiah, the promised one, would have to present himself to the temple somewhere between the year 26 and 33 A.D. And when he did, he would be cut off. Think about what that means. They didn't know what age he would be when he was presented to the temple. But they knew from Scripture that most sacrificial lambs were presented in the prime of their life. So if he has to be there between 26 and 33 AD, he would need to be born at some point during a human lifespan. It wasn't a total surprise to those who knew the Scripture that Messiah was coming soon. 600 years before he was born, Daniel predicted that he would die in 26 to 33 AD. They knew he would be born within 80 years of those dates. So you can imagine how the anticipation began to build as it got closer and closer and closer, and the Messiah hadn't been identified yet. The promised one would be Jewish. He'd be from the line of Jacob. 
Jacob had 12 children. Each of Jacob's children were apportioned into the 12 tribes of Israel. So which tribe is he going to come from? Well, turns out the promised one has to come through the tribe of Judah. Where would the scepter rise? It's going to rise out of Israel. And then in Genesis 49, God tells us, and oh, by the way, it's going to rise from Judah. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. The royal authority will come from the descendant of Judah. The promised one from Judah will receive tribute and the obedience of the peoples. The Messiah one has to be a man. He has to be Semitic. He has to come from the line of Abraham through Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. Which family? Well, God doesn't leave us wondering. The promised one has to come through the family of Jesse. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. So a branch will come out of the line of Jesse. It'll be a branch that produces fruit. Remember that the Holy Spirit we know produces spiritual fruit. We'll learn more about this branch, but it becomes even more clear that this branch is representing the promised one, Isaiah eleven two, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes sees or decide disputes based on what his ears hear. But with righteousness he'll judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. This person will have the spirit of the Lord rest upon them. When Jesus was baptized, John recognized him because the Spirit of God came and rested and stayed upon him. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and remain on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Now, not only are we learning now the genealogy, but we're beginning to understand more about who he would be. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, might, knowledge, respect for the Lord, judging with righteousness. So we look to the family of Jesse. Jesse had eight sons. So which one? Next truth. The promised one must come from the line of David. And Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel, and Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said, go get him, and we'll not sit down until he comes here. And he sent and brought him in, and now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel 7, 8. Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should become the prince over my people Israel. This is an important part of the Bible. It's called the Davidic covenant. God enters into a covenant with David and his offspring. And as that covenant's revealed, we learn more about the promised one. God telling David, my hand is on you. 
Yes, you're going to be the ruler of the people of Israel. But one day, there'll be a king of Israel, one of many. And then God reveals something that his plan is much bigger than just Israel. 2 Samuel 7, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all the vision, Nathan spoke to David. You see, David, the king that's coming is not just you. There's a king coming who will be king forever. David, your house, your lineage, it will endure forever. The throne will be established. In other words, David, from your line, there will be a forever throne. The only person who could have a forever throne is someone who's eternal, God. What he's promising to David is there will be someone eternal, God, through your line, who will be king forever. Psalm 132, 11, the Lord swore to David a sure oath for which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. The lineage has to come through David. Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. To establish it, to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God is saying there's going to be a king, an eternal God king who will come from your line. You're not gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. Remember how Abraham got ahead? No, you don't do it, I do it. It's gonna be a king. He's gonna live eternally. He's gonna be the prince of peace. He's gonna be the wonderful counselor. He's gonna be all these things. But David has more than one son. We learn the last one we're gonna to cover today is that the promised one must come from the line of Solomon. First Chronicles, we learn, David speaking. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as a leader and in the house of Judah, my father's house. And among my father's son, he took pleasure in me to make me king over Israel. He just quoted the lineage. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he's chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, it is Solomon, your son, who will build my house and my courts, for I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. This idea of a forever kingdom, a forever throne would come through Solomon's lineage. And only an eternal Messiah could fulfill that prophecy. So we just went through nine clues, nine genealogical clues. Man, Semitic, Abraham, not from Ishmael, rather from Isaac, not from Esau, rather from Jacob, of all the 12 tribes, God says, keep your eye on Judah. Of all the families of the tribe of Judah, keep focus on that branch of Jesse. Of Jesse's son, watch the youngest one, David. And of all David's sons, keep your eye on Solomon and his offspring. 
Why did Matthew start his story with a genealogy? Because he knew the prophecies. And he knew his Jewish audience knew the prophecies. These prophecies were so well known that the arrival of the Messiah was expected. That any mention of Jesus being the Messiah or telling anything Jesus did without first proving that he had the genealogic pedigree would have been worthless. See, Matthew knew. I've got to show you that he follows all these genealogical clues. Because if any one of them's wrong, it doesn't matter what he did, he can't be the Messiah. He knew. God doesn't make mistakes. He promised things about the coming Messiah and Jesus fulfilled it. If he didn't, he could never be the Messiah because then God would be a liar. But genealogy is only part of the prophecies. We covered nine today. We have six more to go, at least the ones that I've chosen. Next week, we're going to get six more prophecies. And at the moment where we are, any descendant of Solomon could have been the Messiah. There are more clues. We're going to study that narrows down the possibilities to only one human ever born. Only one man ever born at any time or in any place in human history met the prophecies and could have been the Messiah. If you believe that God wrote the scriptures to us, and honestly, if you study them with an open mind, it's pretty obvious. Then you'll come to the realization that of all the people ever born in this world, of all the millions of people who might be a descendant of Solomon, only Jesus could have been the promised one. In fact, if Jesus wasn't the Messiah, no one else could have been. God loved us so much that on this topic, his word is crystal clear. He made absolutely sure that we didn't miss him when he came. We're going to look at those six promises next week and begin to understand the true Christmas story. Let's pray. God, I thank you that you, first of all, stepped into the creation and you came here to save us. And for thousands of years before your arrival, you told us you were coming. You told us where you'd be, who you'd be, how you'd get here. You told us so many things about you. Every one of them fulfilled, every one of them true. The only way people cannot see the truth in your word is to decide they don't want it from the beginning. And yet here we stand on Christmas and we look at why this moment was so miraculous. For those who knew the scriptures, you didn't surprise them, they were expecting you. Just like we, God, today expect you to return any minute. Those who know the scripture knows it has to be very soon. So God, as we open our eyes to see the truth of your word, to see how you pr predicted and then carried out your plan through all the lines and all the stories, we begin to see that the entire Old Testament's about Jesus. Every story, everything foreshadowing the Messiah to come. So God, as we spend time this Christmas, would you please open our hearts to see what you've truly revealed in your son. Help us to understand the power of what happened. Help us to get not caught up in things that aren't critical this Christmas season, but to focus on the one critical thing 
You promised, you delivered, and you're still promising and delivering. We thank you for the surety of your word and the surety of our future. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.